Ed Conboy, welcome to the new school. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be here. So here we are. We're, we're sitting in my living room in Bolinas. It's uh, a blue moon, a, a full blue moon on the 31st of December, 2009. Uh, we're two men of a certain age. Mm. You're 59. I'm 66. Um, and uh, you called, uh, emailed actually a couple of days ago suggesting we get together, and I asked if we could do a new school conversation, and that's how we find ourselves here. Yep, this is where we are. <laughs> <laughs> so as I looked through uh, the remarkable materials that you've put up on the web about your work, um, if I were to try to capsulize uh, what I see there, uh, you are a psychotherapist, a coach, a organizational strategist, uh, a business consultant. Uh, what am I missing? I guess the only thing I'm missing is photography. photography. So I do that as well, yeah. Excellent. And you live in Philadelphia. Tell us about the work you're doing in Philadelphia right now. Actually, it's very interesting work I sort of found myself in. Um, I work with a very large nonprofit um, family therapy group. It's about 110 therapists and mm -hmm. eight offices. Half of my work is there, pretty traditional psychotherapy. The other half is actually a bit more interesting for me because my history in terms of uh, working in the psychological world would be essentially working in non-traditional settings, which would include <coughs> excuse me, some of the coaching I did, some of the organizational consulting also had a sort of therapeutic bent to it. Um, so the other half of my time in Philadelphia is working in a faith-based organization, which is uh, very innovative. It's called Broad Street Ministry, and it's um, a very progressive uh, group of folks who are working in, uh, in an interesting part of center city Philadelphia with uh, um, working with homeless people, a lot of marginalized folks, um, um, and I'm developing a very, very different kind of brief therapy model because many of the clients there, we only get one shot at them. So it's, uh, it really does even, it helps my practice in terms of making me more focused. It's a very interesting setting when you pretty much are only going to be with this person for an hour or less. And that's really all you have. It actually has been really great for my discipline as a therapist to be able to enter into all of my therapy sessions as if it were the only one I have. And it's really it's Could, allowed me to... Give us an example. Uh, uh, a patient, a typical patient that you might see with one hour to make whatever difference you're going to oh, make. One that comes to mind the other day was a... Um, um, Vietnam veteran who uh, had never seen a therapist and wouldn't and um, uh, considered me not a therapist so he could really sit and talk to me. Um, I don't think I'll ever see him again. We had an extraordinary moment together in the sense that he said that's the first time he'd ever talked to a non-veteran about his um, post-traumatic stress. So it was, very, it was a very interesting moment for me to be able to be in, in his presence. Yeah. Now, trauma is a special interest of mine and of ours at the New School. We've done a whole series of conversations around mm -hmm. trauma in different ways. And I noticed in the materials about all the different kinds of people that you've worked with that trauma survivors are, are one of the groups that you've spent a lot of time on. A fair amount, yes, mm -hmm. I have. Um, and and what, what have you learned about helping people with trauma 
What, what have you learned about what works? Well, I've certainly learned the limits of therapy, uh, talk therapy especially. Mm -hmm. um, what I see working quite a bit is um, some combination of body work with some insight. But um, my sense is that trauma resides in the cells of the body and the memory is there. And, and unless there's some sort of body work, whether it's EMDR or some kind of, um, of uh, working with the very physicality of the, of the trauma, even the emotional trauma, my sense it does reside perhaps at the cell level. I don't know. But that, that would be my experience. It's not useful as a therapy alone. It's not, not all that helpful. Let's talk a little about EMDR. I actually had an EMDR session once with a traumatic uh, area of my body that uh, I'd had traumatic experience with for years. And two EMDR sessions made a quite marked difference in yes. the experience of that trauma. Uh, could you say a little about what EMDR is? Well, I'm not an EMDR practitioner. I've, I've actually have had a a specialist do some work with me several years ago after a um, um, traffic accident that was very useful. It's, um, it's generally some sense, it's a desensitization that uh, I think it's, it essentially does some reprogramming of the actual thought processes in the brain and in the body where it does a lot of rapid eye movement and sometimes some tapping. And I'm not really sure of the, um, the physical um, underpinnings to it. I know it works. I know it's very effective. And I would generally not work with a trauma survivor unless I was also that person we're working with somebody doing something like EMDR or some sort of body work. I'm going to be talking with a psychotherapist from Southern California named Robert Bray, who has a tapping therapy right. that yes. is very analogous to I've EMDR. heard of that, yeah. yeah. Um, one of the things that's striking to me about uh, EMDR and related therapies has been the strong resistance of the organized psychotherapy community to making it available as a uh, approach for veterans and other people who really need it. Have you run into that or not? I haven't. Uh, the group that I work with is called Council for Relationships in yeah. Philadelphia. There's a seven or eight uh, folks that are very well trained there that I that I um, rely on, yes, very much so. Oh, that's so. wonderful. Yeah. yeah, so we have it as part of our, um, our service offering. So I would often work in conjunction with them rather than me developing that specialty. I really believe in, in having folks around me. It's the advantage of working in a group practice. I have exactly. some, some people who have that specialty who have worked with some of my mm -hmm. folks. Mm -hmm. You've had an extraordinary range of different kinds of people that you've worked with. Uh, sort of high-tech Silicon Valley leaders, international law firm leaders, nonprofit and foundation leaders, musicians, performing artists, inner-city youth, uh, professional athletes, uh, just all kinds of uh, an unusually wide range of, uh, of uh, different kinds of uh, people. What can you say what commonalities in your therapeutic work guide you that seem uh, useful across all these different mm -hmm. kinds of people? Yeah, on the surface, it would seem that they're a very diverse group. In one sense, they are, of course. In another sense, they're not. Um, 
I have a consultant friend who says that we often or almost always consult to our own issues. And I think sometimes even when the clients that we attract sometimes has to do with our own sort of guiding questions. Um, a number of years ago I had a question that I was intrigued by which was really how do people perform really well under pressure? Uh, because I always struggled with that as a as a child, I was pretty anxious, pretty shy, that kind of thing. So I've always, I was amazed at people who can really do these extraordinary things under pressure, especially if they're performing. Uh, and then lo and behold, I ended up working with a number of people like that. And that's really the, the key common factor, is most of these folks work under um, enormous pressure, and they don't have an opportunity to do it over again. They're often in a sort of a live setting where it's, they're out there. And that was really my intriguing question that I began to work with. And, um, and in terms of the work I would do, I, I studied hypnotherapy years ago out here in Berkeley, and it was, and I've used quite a bit of, um, of that training in my work with, with various people. But I had a <clears throat> session years ago, I remember in the morning I was working with a, a cellist uh, who had injured her hand. And um, we did a, some pretty standard hypnotherapy work. I was doing some work with her. She was coming back from the injury and she was going to do her first live performance. She was dealing with that anxiety. So we did some, some imagery work and some, you know, some desensitization, did some little bit of biofeedback, some standard things. Uh, and it seemed very effective. In the afternoon, I was working with a young motorcycle racer who had injured his foot and was coming back to perform again. And I pretty much did the exact same modalities with him as I did with this uh, middle-aged woman who was a cellist. So the actual, um, the, the performance itself, the type of performance wasn't as, um, uh, those were very different, but actually on the mental level and the imagery level, it was still having to come dealing with the anxiety of coming back from an injury doing the performance. So in that sense, in my work, it was very similar, although their actual performing one was on a motorcycle going, I don't know, 150 miles an hour. The other was a cellist who was sitting still. But in every other way, the, uh, the mental imagery was, was quite strikingly similar. Do you know the wonderful quote from Ernest Hemingway? It uh, just always stayed with me that courage is grace under pressure. Right, yes. And they both exhibited that. Yeah. Speaking of your therapy work, you've mentioned imagery, uh, hypnosis, biofeedback. What have been the major influences? Who are the individuals or schools of thought that have really resonated to you as a therapist? Oh, I'd have to say Carl Rogers. Even still, he was... I, I didn't study with him. I, I studied with some of his students. Uh, but I would say he had the greatest influence on me professionally. As and what a, was it about the Rogerian approach that was powerful for you? Oh, geez, there's so, so much. Mostly, I think it was, was the sense of the unconditional positive regard, that sense of finding um, that connection, that sense of, of really of honoring people who do have the courage to come into a, a therapy session, to be able to, um, uh, to delve into the depths that they do, to, to, to look at, at pain and shame and whatever is going on for them. Uh, and to be able to hold them in that sense of, of, of um, if, if I could even closely resemble what he could do, in that sense of, of 
that deep regard, which I think is a sort of a wonderful Midwestern term that, that is often misconstrued in our society. I think later in his life he actually did say love. Uh, so I think that... I was going to ask yeah, whether yeah. unconditional positive regard can be translated as love. I think it can. I think in our culture we sort of have a little bit of, a, of a, an allergic response to that professionally. But um, I think it's so. I think, I think that is, that is the, the transformative moment I think always involves love. Uh, I don't think there can be any transformation, positive transformation without that. Now you've also been a Zen practitioner for how long? Oh, not long, just uh, oh, maybe four or five years. And you've studied with John Tarrant, who we both know. Yes, yes. he's um, Extraordinary talent. Uh, yeah, he's, he's a remarkable teacher. Poet, exquisite poet, yep. Zen practitioner. Uh, Great therapist. Uh, and I wanted to ask you whether the experience with Zen has significantly entered your therapeutic work. You know, I think it has. It has a... I think it's sort of, uh, it's, um, Zen is very subversive that way. Um, so you don't notice it, just sort of um, how one can just be absorbed in that state. I noticed it not long ago. I've been doing some training of young therapists um, back in Philadelphia. Um, we have a training program, and uh, there was this young woman, brand new to therapy, her first year as a master's student. And... Um, it really gave me the opportunity to visit the fundamental components or elements of therapy because her questions were so profoundly basic. Uh, and uh, just right down to the point of how do you greet a new client. Uh, and it was a wonderful moment for me to, to begin to talk about how, um, how to begin to become more present, to actually even walking down the hallway and, and creating these, these positive intentions for the person that you're going to, to greet and how much Zen is like that to stay in that moment, that this is an extraordinarily special moment for this person who, who that I don't know anything about. I, I, I have a piece of paper with a name and maybe a couple of, um, of um, descriptors and nothing else. And, <clears throat> and to have that open mind and be able to see that person for the first time maybe as they've never been seen. So there's a way that Zen allows that, that sense of intentionality to come into my work that wasn't really there before. It was, um, my work was, was good, but compared to looking at, at a Zen practitioner, it was pretty sloppy. Can I make a quick pause? Just need to do a quick adjustment on your mic. Oh, sorry, am I, uh, no, you're, am I you're, garbled? You're fine. Some people have different... Ken is a perfectionist, which is why we work so well together. Great. He really likes these, these to, be, to be good. That should be better. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Ken. Is this going okay for you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. In your uh, uh, writing about your work with John Tarrant, you, you mentioned some of the koans that he uh, gave you to reflect on. Uh, one was, how do we live with the gap between us and everything else? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, I'm still working with that one. <laughs> <laughs> And another one was, how is your hand like the Buddha's hand? Um, that one I, I, I sort of struggle with, and I, I, sometimes I, I find that one to be a little bit tricky, and I, I, don't, I don't know about that one. It's not quite as, um, as 
transformative as some of the other ones. I think the one that had the most impact on me was the first one he gave me, which was um, the, the shortened form is The Whole World is Medicine. Um, I sat with that for almost, well, a bit over a year. The whole world is medicine. Yeah, I believe the whole koan is, if the whole world is medicine, then what is the self? I think that's right. But uh, I stayed with the first piece. He was, I was new and he said, well, let's just do this part. <laughs> and so I sat with the whole world is medicine for um, quite some time. And just in that soaking, that is a transformative process in itself. To sit with a koan uh, every day, it, it becomes a companion, it becomes a friend, it becomes an adversary, it becomes an uh, irritating guest that stays too long, uh, becomes a great teacher. Um, if the whole world is medicine, then what is the self? That's beautiful. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. Uh, John has a great uh, uh, insight and intuition into what koans to offer students when. He's really remarkable about that. You also had a lovely line from Jack Cornfield uh, from the Buddha's little instruction book. Those who are awake live in a constant state of amazement. Yeah, yeah I remember that. Uh, um, I think that's, that is my experience in those rare moments when I am awake. It's always amazing. The simplest thing is, is just so extraordinarily amazing. Like, how did that come to be? You know, uh, isn't that just remarkable, wonderful? How did it, how did it happen? Uh, you also have a very interesting relationship with words, speaking of koans. Uh, in your blogs and other, other things like that, you'll spend time with a word like aftermath or a phrase like, a well-turned ankle. Yeah, yeah. Um, perhaps it's my sort of Celtic lineage or something, I'm not sure, but words have a uh, physicality to me. They have, um, uh, in many ways, they're often more real than what I see as everyday reality. There's a quality of language that... Um, um, that has always had a, uh, a sense of wonder to me. Um, I remember as a young undergraduate, I, I think I got the quote right. Uh, somebody let me know if I don't. Um, I think it was Wittgenstein who, um, he asked the question, how is language unique? And I think his answer was something that started out that words are like film on deep water. And I never forgot that. It was a sense of, of course they are. You know, without, without language, we can, we can really not comprehend our experience. And then with language, we alter it. So it is a film. You know, it's, uh, without language, we sort of become autistic in, in, and can be very limited. But also, we, the price we pay is that we are no longer sort of primary participants uh, in our experiences were once removed um, with language. So it's a, it's a odd prison sometimes that we create for ourselves that also can be um, quite liberating at the same time. So I've always been intrigued by um, how language works. And often in my work, I'll have a physical response in my body to a, a word somebody will use. And, and um, 
that becomes a, um, sometimes a moment for radical curiosity about what does that mean to that person and, and to, to get to that moment of being able to name that experience that they're having, that in itself can also be, uh, create enormous leverage for them to change. Words are like a film on deep water, Wittgenstein. Yeah, I think that's right, yeah. You studied philosophy at Loyola. Right, yeah. Oh. yeah. Who were the philosophers who touched you? Well, John Dewey, of course, was important. Um, one of my professors uh, was um, uh, very much involved with both Plato and Dewey. Um, Immanuel Kant was... Uh, I sort of dabbled in, in his work. My professor, Dr. Nakbar, was a brilliant uh, Dutch philosopher, and um, I, I have a sense that it was a, there was a lot of pearls that he threw out there, and it was a, a lot of wasted effort on some of us uh, um, knuckle-headed philosophy students. But um, um, mostly I was really intrigued with the philosophical community there at Loyola. Um, it was. Um, Is that a Jesuit school? It was a Jesuit school, yeah, and it was a wonderful experience. Uh, I had I had Jesuit teachers for eight years. I went to a Jesuit prep school back east, and so I, um, they were um, extraordinarily inf influential. I'd have to say that um, uh, Jesuit training is probably the most some of the most rigorous. They're the most some of the most rigorous and uh, um, effective thinkers I've ever I've ever encountered. Um, I've been reading and was profoundly touched by um, a book on leadership by a man, I'm not going to bring his name up right now, who spent 16 years as a Jesuit priest and then left to become uh, a very senior guy at J.P. Morgan and spent another 10 or 15 okay. years at J.P. Yeah. Morgan. Right. And he then wrote a book about the principles of leadership practice from a 450-year-old organization that he thought were applicable to everybody. And essentially, it was taking, in a very non-denominational, non-sectarian way, the fundamental teachings of the Jesuit uh, vision and applying it to uh, all the issues that we struggle with. This book was recommended to me by a very extraordinary man named Bill Drayton, who was the founder of Ashoka, which okay. is the International Organization of Entrepreneurs for the Public. And Bill, after having created this amazing organization that goes around and seeks out these very extraordinary people in, in countries all around the world who are doing social entrepreneurship, he kept running into Jesuits. And he then began to realize that the principles from which the Jesuits were working were very much the same as the principles of social entrepreneurship that he was developing as a, yes. a shared concept. So I became fascinated by what the Jesuits have to offer because they were a, a revolutionary order at their founding. They were unlike any other uh, you know, Catholic uh, order at that time. Yeah, they're quite extraordinary that way. Um, their <clears throat> their structure is um, um, hasn't changed that much. They're uh, they um, since they were a missionary order, they did train people to be what we would call today entrepreneurs. Because we have to remember that 400 years ago, they would go off somewhere and 
they would sort of be self-organizing. They didn't have the kind of, of hierarchical approach, you know, day to day. They had to sort of figure things out. Yeah, they'd send one guy into China or two people into Japan or whatever it yeah, was, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, had a recent experience a few years ago. Uh, there was a Jesuit named Ed Malatesta who died a few years ago. He was at the University of San Francisco. He, um, he started the, the Chinese library over at Lone Mountain Campus, and I met Ed. I was doing some consulting with someone who wanted to bring some young students from China to study here. And um, so when I met him, uh, he had an extraordinary life. He was... Um, he always wanted to be a missionary when he was a, a child, and he went to uh, Jesuit schools and into Jesuit seminary. He wanted to be a missionary to China, and he was a brilliant man, so he ended up teaching philosophy and theology at the Vatican for 15 years, never getting to China. And he, in his early 40s, he asked the Father General then if he could go to China, and he said, well, if you can learn Chinese in two years, then you can, figuring that would do it. And he came back here, went to Monterey, and learned Chinese in a year and a half, um, was fluent in Chinese, and, and I said, so what did you do? He said, well, I went over to our, our Jesuit seminary in Beijing, he said, which is now where the Red Guard lives. He said, and they, they take extraordinarily great care of it. Um, they, they look at the Jesuits as part of their, their history, so they maintain the, the cemetery where the founders of the Chinese uh, Jesuits are, and um, um, the Red Guard is there, and he said, I said, so I went up to the library, I knocked on the door, and I said, my name's Ed Malatesta, and I want to get into my library, and the gentleman there said no. <clears throat> he said, so I went back for 10 years in a row, every year at the same time, and knocked on the door, and he said, the 10th year, he said, you can come in for an hour. <laughs> and he said, within three years, he had the run of the place. And so that's part of that, that relentlessness. And I asked Ed, I said, how could you do it? How could you spend essentially 15 years going there and knocking on the door and hearing no. He said, so I have a, a big advantage over the Chinese government. He said, what's that? He said, well, I have about 40 generations of Jesuits who preceded me and hopefully 40 that'll come after me. He said, we'll outlast them all. And he said, I don't see my work as ending in my lifetime. And that's part of, I think, that, that folks like that, that's where they have that sense of, their lineage becomes really important. Um, I think there's a similar process with somebody like uh, uh, John Tarrant. He has the same sense of lineage. that He's not going to finish the work here. And I think when we take the ego out of our work and we really see ourselves as part of a larger landscape, as a, a sense of, of this, um, this uh, painting that's being composed that will be continuing after, after our time with the brush, it really does alter how we see the work. Um, and I think that um, Jesuits certainly, that was something they taught me, that this is, uh, that it doesn't end, you know, when, when I do, if I'm doing good work. Do you consider yourself still a Catholic? No, 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 I wouldn't, wouldn't say that at all. How would you describe yourself now? How would I describe myself now? Um, I think in the very most technical term, I would call myself an agnostic in the, in the literal sense of not knowing. Um, um, a Socratic agnostic? I would think so, yeah, something like that, yeah. Um, um, one time I was struggling with an issue in my life that I was trying to figure out in uh, uh, sitting with John Tarrant one day, and he said, you know, Ed, sometimes not knowing is a terrific place to rest. And I had to say to him, that thought never occurred to me in my life, that not knowing could be restful. 
He said, well, try it, it can be. And I did, and it, it is. <laughs> you spoke of your Celtic lineage. What kind of a family and history did you emerge from that got you to Loyola? Oh, where, I was, where were you born? I was born in Philadelphia. Um, what kind of family? Uh, what we would call then a working class family. Um, my dad worked for the Pennsylvania Railroad. Um, he's still alive. He started when the last year of steam engines. And uh, he was there the whole time that they had electric locomotives. Um, and um, my grandparents, I guess the most influential person would be my grandmother on my mother's side, who was an um, um, extraordinarily powerful woman. Her, her, her mother was also from, uh, she was from Ireland, and um, I didn't know her, but she was one of those, those young women that came from Ireland that worked here <clears throat> as a domestic and sent money home every, every week. And she ended up uh, um, owning a number of properties in Philadelphia, was very successful, as my grandmother was. Um, and there was a great love of language, and uh, of course for them, probably religion was central. Did you go to parochial schools all your life? Oh yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. The first public school I went to was um, San Francisco State University as a, getting a master's in counseling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does, you said you're an agnostic and that you're not a Catholic anymore. How do you hold figures like the Buddha and the Christ and other avatars or whatever you want to call them, what place do they have, if any, in your inner life? Well, I don't think they have that much. Um, I would think the artifact that I've carried with me from Catholicism was actually, an ex I had an extraordinarily sort of close relationship as a child to Mary, you know, the who I would think of, I guess Jung would have said, who was the goddess. You know, she was the, the goddess that sort of um, um, came came through over time <clears throat> and emerged over time. I think uh, so. I think she has. She would have had a more extraordinary impact on me than um, Buddha and Jesus. Uh, they don't really. They're not very central anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. They're just. Uh, they're. They're important historical figures to me. Um, you mentioned Jung. What about Jung? Well, I just remember reading some things about how he. He also had a sense that uh, um, Mary was a, an important um, sort of addition to uh, modern Trinity. religion to be able to. Yeah, bring he, that when Trinity he felt in, when yeah. when. Uh, when the church elevated Mary, that right. that this was a yeah. fundamentally important moment. Yeah, in I think it was too. Yeah, I think that she's part his, of the Trinity now. As far as I would, yeah. if I were a Trinitarian, I would put I would put Mary her there. right in there. Yeah. Have you seen the Red Book, uh, Young's uh, uh, extraordinary? I, I've heard of. It. I haven't seen it. No, I've yeah. been completely immersed. I bet in it's it. really yeah, it's a very extraordinary remarkable. thing. Remarkable. Yeah, yeah. You have a quote from Young, which I actually just put on my little email server. I, borrowed it or swiped it from you, no, good for that you. says, uh, your vision will become clear only when you look into your heart, who looks outside dreams, who looks inside awakens. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Has Jung been a, a significant influence for you or simply somebody that you 
that touches you from time to time? I think Moore touches me from time to time. I, I, I was not a serious student of Jung's. I think he's, um, he's a very important figure to me in terms of his, um, uh, his capacity to see the interconnectedness of, um, of, of being. Uh, that sense of beyond just the collective unconscious, but really seeing this this incredible web uh, that underpins everything that we experience, um, that that seems to play hide and seek with us every time we think we found it, um, it sort of disappears again into the. I had a wonderful conversation a few weeks ago with someone I'm going to do a new school conversation with named Tom Yarish who was the past president of the Jung Institute in San Francisco and the International Association of Analytic Psychology. Both of his parents were Central European Jews who were analyzed by Jung. Wow. And then he became a Jungian analyst. And um, he's written a very remarkable book called The Jungians about the dissemination of Jung's teachings. And particularly in the book, the fascinating and difficult dynamic between the uh, the flirtation with the Nazi tradition that Jung went through or the Nazi uh, ideology that Jung went through but also that many of his close students were Jewish and they played a remarkable role in the diaspora of Jung's teaching around the world. Yes, uh, yes. Just such a fascinating uh, uh, reflection. But for me, and I, I wonder if this is true for you or not, it seems to me that even though Jung said he could never have done what he did without Freud's work before him, that to me Jung emerges as, and I know this is very personal, but as, as an even more important figure than Freud. Um, I would agree with that. Yeah. 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 And I know that that has to do with a, a certain framing of my own that inclines me in that direction. But I just think it's a much richer vision of the whole of the unconscious and the self and the archetypes and all the rest, rather than this, you know, sort of libido sexual dynamic that in Freud is at Psychosexual hydraulics. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you've also spent a good deal of time um, with Leslie Medine. Uh, yes, I have. Yeah. And you've written a very fascinating uh, piece with Leslie and then a piece about Leslie's work. Uh, why don't we start by just asking you to describe who Leslie is and what her work is about? Well, that's difficult. I've, I've worked with Leslie probably... Oh, almost 20 years now, I would say. Um, Leslie is a extraordinary educator, and I would say she's also a, one of the, the finest community organizers in the sort of Solonsky kind of uh, community organizer. Her, um, um, her work... Jesus, just it's hard to even capture. I first met Leslie when she began a school that my son went to, um, Beacon Day School in Oakland, um, that was a wonderful year-round school, incredibly innovative. It was um, 
a fabulous experience. And then I began to work with her, and then she began to uh, develop other interests, and in mostly working with youth uh, over the years. And so Leslie started a number of programs. She has a wonderful program called On the Move that is, uh, has several different, many different working parts to it. She works with uh, emancipated and emancipating foster youth. Um, there's a whole, she's doing a wonderful work with uh, John Esterly from the Whitman Institute and his support and a number of other foundations doing some work with um, um, democratic zones and, and civic discourse and deliberation up in, in Napa creating a whole neighborhood of people to be much more civically engaged. Uh, so she's a, she's a real change agent. She's one of those wizards that just seems to be able to um, uh, make things happen. I don't think Leslie's ever met a good idea that she didn't implement. Uh, and uh, that's her extraordinary gift is she can just make things happen and bring people together. Uh, and she's... Uh, and she's really wonderful at bringing people uh, who wouldn't normally be working together to work to help her create visions and then implement them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's what, that's what she does extremely well. Mm -hmm. And the piece that you, I think you wrote two pieces, one with her and one about the work, if, if my memory serves It goes me. back, you probably, memory's better than mine okay. about some of that stuff. Uh, but, uh, one of your pieces was on adult reflection and youth development, uh, and uh, uh, another piece was on the use of uh, talking circles yeah, and work right. with oh, adolescents. Yeah, back yeah. Uh, and what struck me was, um, I just thought you said it very well, that, that youth development required adult development, that right. adult development was the precondition for youth development, and that adult development was greatly facilitated by something you call adult reflection, which you describe as different from psychotherapy uh, in some very interesting ways. Do you remember what you yeah, said? Yeah, vaguely. I, uh, um, I don't know what I, what I might say now it might be different than what I wrote, but mm -hmm. I guess that's okay. Um, my experience, Leslie, once she called me, this was a number of years ago, she was working with these uh, young people um, in a youth development program, and one of the kids said, uh, well, you're a coach, right? And she said, yeah. And she said, you push us pretty hard, don't you? She said, yeah, we do. And he, so this uh, young person said, well, well, who's pushing you? And she said, no one. And he said, that doesn't seem right, does it? She said, no, it doesn't. And that's when, so she called me and she relayed that story to me. She said, so I think we need somebody to come in to, to, to act as our coach. So we didn't, it was one of those moments we didn't know what we were doing. And so we did it really well because we just went into, into that uh, without any preconceptions. And so um, we decided to meet once a week, but we brought the whole staff together. It was remarkable how how generous she was with uh, trusting me with this process. But we got together on Friday afternoons. They closed the entire place down at noon. People went to lunch, and then we, we reconvened in a different location from where they worked in uh, Alameda. And we, um, and we sat in a circle, and we went from 2 o'clock to 5 o'clock. And there were only three things we did. One is that um, everyone would check in. Everyone's voice would get in the room. And we would do acknowledgments at the end of it. And people could talk about anything they wanted to except the kids. 
that they worked with. And, those, and from that, we really began to develop a very much of an, an instrumental approach to our work, where we, we saw ourselves as instruments that really needed that kind of tuning. And so many extraordinary things happened in those times. And we, we, we met for a year that way, and then we, uh, we decided to go, th I think, three, three weeks a month. And then, then now they're still doing it every other month. And I think when, <clears throat> when adults come together like that, to really challenge each other, to really deal with whatever is going on as their, their work becomes this expression of a deeper, greater self. Uh, that what is it about my work that is an expression of who I am? And then getting into the details of that and for people to face their fears. You know, we would have remarkable deep dialogues and very challenging conversations about things like authority. What's authority mean? What does it mean to be to have courage. Uh, uh, for some people, it was how do we how do we stay in our work even even uh, to that point. Um, a number of years later, Leslie was talking to one of her funders, and the funder was asking her about how she dealt with burnout, and she said that they don't have any in the organization, and they, to a person, each person there said that they could not imagine doing their work without those adult reflection meetings that's now a part of almost every one of her organizations where people come together and really speak authentically about their experiences of themselves and each other and, and in going into some very deep questions. Uh, and it, that, in it, that became the, the, um, um, the container for, then for these young people to really begin to develop. And then so we saw you know, enormous change come from that because the adults were in it with them, but in a very different level. Yeah, that's very resonant for me because, as you know, for the last 24 years, my central dharmic work has been the Commonweal Cancer right. Health Program. Right. And so we've done 150 of these weeks at Commonweal over the last 24 years. We just did the 150th. And we have uh, three staff meetings in the course of the week. Uh, Sunday night, before the program starts, Wednesday morning, mid-program on Saturday morning just before the program ends. And most of the staff meetings are taken up with what you describe as adult reflection. Right. In other words, we talk about each other. If there's something necessary to say about a participant, we'll say it. But the heart of it is tuning ourselves because we are like this um, uh, performance group or uh, you know, string uh, musical ensemble right. uh, that sort of inhales an extra eight people at the beginning of the week and exhales them at yes. the end of the week. And the whole energetic magic of it is in the vitality and the true uh, respect and love that the staff have for each other. And so we have people who've been working together there for 10, 15, 20 years who haven't burned out. Um, because they feel so nourished. By that. That's the essential piece: is yeah. to be that sense of a deep interconnection, uh, where they can begin to um, to to develop those kinds of um, a sense of spaciousness and generosity uh, comes into play there too. I think that's that's incredibly important. Uh, so I think that the I think burnout is fundamentally um, an artifact of isolation. And uh, I think that we will burn out 
um, just from that. Uh, um, Leslie has an axiom that no great work is ever done alone. Uh, and I, I, I think just there's something to that. And we say in the Cancer Help Program that healing takes place in community. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. the same thing. Um, you and mentioned I also, if I could say, I see the same thing happening in families when, right. when parents you know, are, are so focused on the kids that they lose the sense of their own development. Exactly. You can see the same process that mirrors it there as well. Absolutely. You mentioned John Esterley and the Whitman Institute, and, and you have been a fellow of the Whitman Institute for how many years now? Oh, I guess uh, five years, I guess. Yeah. Five years. Yeah. Um, and uh, and uh, the, the Whitman Institute is one of the supporters of the new school at Commonweal. So right. we actually met through the Whitman Institute. And I'd like to spend a little time talking about the Whitman Institute because, um, you know, I've been involved in nonprofit and philanthropic work for uh, over 30 years. Um, the Whitman Institute is a quite unusual organization. Yeah, in philanthropy. sure is. And I just wonder from your perspective, uh, what is it that draws you to being a fellow at the Whitman Institute? And what do you consider the dharmic uh, mission or core purpose that the Whitman Institute is um, bringing forth? Well, that's an extraordinary question. Um, I think the work of the Institute has been to be thinking about thinking quite a bit. That's one of their uh, driving missions. But also, I think under John's leadership, John Esterly, over the years, he's really, really d refined that in some, some important ways. He, um, he really does look at the interplay, as he calls it, the interplay of, uh, of critical thinking uh, and emotional clarity and how that leads to effective action. That would be sort of the, the triumvirate of the Institute, of looking at how that works, that um, that interplay is so important. So, so his funding is very strategic that way. He's looking at that those three components, uh, the critical thinking, the emotional clarity, and then the effective action. That's what, that's what uh, sort of connected me with him. I think when I first met John, actually it was interesting, it was through the adult reflection piece. He had heard about, uh, he was interested in dialogue, and one of the things he was looking at was how dialogue uh, impacts organizations, and he heard about this dialogic uh, experience that we called adult reflection. And he came and met with me and he said, um, I'd like to observe the, uh, this adult reflection. And I said, uh, well, no, uh, I don't do observers because, you know, I, I said, you know, I'm old enough now that I don't have to have people sitting in the corner, you know, lobbying questions to me later about why didn't I do this or why didn't I do that. So I said, I'd be happy to have you be a participant if you want to. And he was, he said, he, he'd be delighted. And that was when I first saw the difference. He was a funder who really wanted to get into it. He wasn't just going to be sitting on the sidelines um, asking um, uh, ridiculous questions. And, and he became actually a very important partner with me. He would come in maybe every month or six weeks or so to come in and, and, and sit with us and be a participant. And he was able to see the, the, the transformation over time. We could see people in the organization and how they were developing. It was harder for me to see it being in it every day. It's sort of like watching kids grow and you know, you know, it's your aunt and uncle that come by once a year who notice how 
tall they've gotten. And um, so there was that sense, and John was was wonderful about that, and his whole his whole way of being and and how he thinks these things through, and and how carefully he uh, develops relationships with the uh, with the grantees, and that's been uh, wonderful for me to to be a part of. One of your um, pieces on the internet uh, talked about since it's New Year's Eve, okay, and it talked about New Year's resolutions, and you talked about how you didn't really like the idea of resolutions, but you liked affirmations. Right. Yeah. Um, so here we both are. I'm 66. You're 59. On New Year's Eve, a blue moon in Bolinas. Um, and um, I wonder whether you've thought about any affirmations that are emerging for you for the next year. Well, I haven't, but I guess I could now. Um, I sense that um, my mission and focus now is is perhaps some of the Buddhist influences beginning to uh, uh, to emerge. I'm really um, dedicating as much time and energy I can to looking for ways to alleviate suffering. Uh, I just see that as such a um, such a crucial part of my life to be able to engage with with my own suffering and everyone else's that I encounter and to see how can we transform that. Uh, so that would be my the affirmation I have for myself is to um, is to become more um, create more space for that deep conversation about suffering to emerge. And how do you see yourself moving toward doing more to alleviate suffering? I don't know. I think I'll let the universe sort of um, uh, work that out, figure that out for me, and I'll just uh, hopefully I'll be. Um, I'll stay in the hunt and pay attention to the opportunities that they present themselves. They almost always do. Um, um, my experience is that the doors are always there and they're always unlocked. I'm just struck. I want to say uh, you you wrote something about our work at the new school. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was very kind and and very affirmative uh, because it was early in our history and to be appreciated in that way was uh, something for which I was very grateful. Um, and um, I have found you um, throughout knowing each other only slightly, but in coming together in ways that enabled us to have um, serious conversation, mm -hmm. um, to have this wonderful combination of qualities. Um, I would imagine that you are a very good therapist. I can see why for Leslie Medine and others your help with uh, helping people create learning organizations uh, has been really helpful to people. Um, uh, I. Um, I love the fact that of all the things that you could have done, that uh, you've chosen in this period of your life to do this uh, inner city work with half of your time. Mm. Uh, and um, 
try to do meaningful therapy when you're only going to see a Vietnam vet or somebody else maybe once. Right. You know. Um, and there's this wonderful combination of, um, and maybe you learned this from the Jesuits, I don't know, but it's a, uh, there's a kind of a combination of personal humility, but at the same time, uh, a kind of selfless ambition to make a difference, to alleviate suffering. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I just, um, I just wonder, I, w I guess I wonder how you see yourself. Hmm. Well, in some ways, I, I share a Mennonite friend of mine once said about Mennonites, he said, we're, we're very proud of our humility. So uh, <laughs> I think in some ways I'm very proud of my humility as well. So I, I share that trait with my Mennonite brothers and uh -huh, sisters. So uh -huh. um, I see myself as a, I think as a seeker. I mean, as someone who... Um, um, I guess I have an aversion to complacency. Uh, mm -hmm. It scares me. Uh, and um, um, I generally feel safer when I'm taking risks. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be one of the ways I would, uh, um, I would describe myself. Of just seeing new opportunities and, and uh, um, just trying it on. And uh, I, I don't know where that came from, but I just don't, I don't do well uh, in simulation when mm -hmm. I sort of know how things are going, you know, and so that's part of the therapeutic moment. Um, I know that I'm really actually doing reasonably good work um, when I'm surprised. Um, often um, I may be as surprised by my question at times in a session as I am by the response. Then I know that this is I'm really engaged in something that's really important mm -hmm. to that person and to myself. That, uh, that 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 element of surprise is crucial in terms of um, of that sense of being awake and being amazed. Mm -hmm. It's uh, so that's really how I would see that mm -hmm. that part of my life. And um, when you talk about an aversion to complacency and and wanting to take risks, where do you see? that most vividly in your life right now? Where are you finding those risks um, in your life? Right now I see a lot of the work I'm doing in, in Philadelphia with this faith-based organization. One, it's, a, it's extraordinarily strange for me to be working even in a faith-based organization. That, that itself is, is quite remarkable. Uh, but that sense of, of just being out there, you know, developing uh, uh, attempting to develop some new models for doing some work that uh, I don't know anything about and in finding some of those um, key informants in the world who do know some things. Um, I mean, there's one right here in the Bay Area. I think it's uh, Robert Rosenbaum. Uh, I think his name is, he's a Zen priest, and I think he's a, yes, he was a therapist, uh, ran a counselor program at Kaiser who does a lot of brief therapy work. And I've been, uh, I've been very moved by his writings as well about uh, that sense of, of being in the moment with the client that, and, and the mutual transformation and, that occurs. So uh, uh, there's lots of, um, lots of bodhisattvas out there to, uh, um, to help us along the way. Ed Conboy, thank you for being with us at the New School. It was wonderful to be here, Michael.